You're listening to The Witch Wife, a podcast about the poet Edna St. Vincent Millay, and I'm Samantha Mosca. This week, I'm excited to share with you an interview I did with an author named Jerry Dell. This interview has been uh, sort of trying to be put in motion for the last few weeks. I would like to use that as an explanation as why I didn't post a podcast last week, but I've been a little buried under some schoolwork and, and life. Hopefully, I'll get back on that weekly schedule, and I'll keep denying that this is not a bi-weekly podcast. I'm going to try to keep my nose to the grindstone and uh, get one out every week for you. So in... The exciting interview, I speak with uh, Jerry Dell, and Jerry Dell wrote this book called Blood Too Bright, Floyd Dell Remembers Edna St. Vincent Millay. And Floyd Dell also happens to be Jerry Dell's grandfather. And to tell you a little bit about Floyd Dell uh, is important when I introduce this book, because Floyd Dell was sort of uh, he was a, he was an important historical figure in Greenwich Village, uh, especially in the literary scene. But he's also an important figure in Malay's life. So uh, Floyd Dell was one of these central figures in Greenwich Village. He was a bohemian. He was a feminist. He was a socialist. He was a pacifist. He was a psychoanalyst. He was an editor for a magazine called The Masses which is a radical magazine. Um, They put out all sorts of literature, especially subversive literature, socialist literature. Dell even went on trial twice for his role in uh, distributing and and editing this magazine. So you can see that he was important um, in in a time period, sort of not just like historically, but he was doing this like literary thing to help move along these particular ideologies. But not only that, he was a critic and he was a poet. He wrote novels and plays and essays and he was involved in the literary world. He was enmeshed in the literary world. His name was extremely well known. He was famous. And in a parallel to Malay, aside from the fact that they knew each other and were lovers, um, their lives are sort of paralleled in a way that both of them were extremely well-known, were largely famous, and then as we experience now in, in contemporary time, their shine has faded somewhat. So I think when we talk about Malay and my goal to push her back into the limelight, to push her back into canon, and and with her, I hope to push other writers and other marginalized writers um, of the era who maybe have, have faded in the gleam of, um, you know, T.S. Eliot and, and Ezra Pound and other people I can't stand. And maybe, maybe we can force those big names to share some of that light with some authors who really deserve it. And I think that Floyd Dell is one of those, um, authors who deserves it as much, uh, as Malay does, but for different reasons. So, that's that's Floyd Dell, and you can learn more about him at floyddell.com. The link for that is in the info in the podcast, and the link for uh, Jerry 
is in the podcast as well. So Jerry Dell, um, her book, Blood Too Bright. I'm just going to read you the blurb that is written on the website or a little bit of the blurb, and then I'm going to talk to you about my feelings about it. So 100 years ago, bohemian author and editor of the Radical Masses magazine, Floyd Dell, began a passionate affair with a newcomer to Greenwich Village, the yet-to-be-discovered girl poet Edna St. Vincent Millay. In the years that followed, both Dell and Millay became symbols of early 20th century feminism, rebellion, and literary freedom. A century later, while poring over her grandfather Floyd's papers at its Chicago's Newberry Library, Jerry Dell discovered hundreds of handwritten letters and an unpublished memoir about his love affair with Millay. Finding him as outlandish, entertaining, and insightful as he was when she knew him 50 years before, she chose to bring him and his poet lover back to life within the pages of this book. And that's what she does. Honestly, this is a really fantastic compilation of letters. It is really well edited. From what I understand from my interview with, uh, with Jerry, that there was just a tremendous amount of text to sort through, to choose from. And what she did was she compiled uh, these letters, and these letters are from um, Floyd Dell to Miriam Gurko. And Miriam Gurko is a Malay biographer. She was planning on publishing these letters, which you can read all about that story in the introduction. Um, that doesn't end up happening, but this is what uh, creates the archive that Jerry Dell gets to search through and put together. And she puts this together in such a way, she includes a bit of um, Floyd Dell's own memoir in the beginning. It gives us a lot of context. It gives us a lot of story that fills in um, what Floyd Dell remembers as fact. He had a very good memory, so, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to call into question that, but that's what his own, his own memoirs sort of shape the, the, the outline of this narrative. And she makes a really cohesive narrative. I can only imagine with the 700 pages or so of letters that she had to go through, she creates this really concise, linear, relatable, emotional, understandable story. And it's just comprised of letters um, from Floyd Dell, not the, not the letters that he received. Um, which is kind of interesting, and I think there's there's a lot of these sort of self-aware moments in his letters where he recognizes that um, it can be a little odd without Miriam's voice in response. But I I just really love this book. I, I find that um, all the biographies that I've read, that I pick up, I read a lot of the same thing. And that's not in detriment to any of the biographies that I've read. There's only one of them that I absolutely hated, but <laughs> that's not really the point right now. The point is, is that there's only so much you can mine from the biographical information of Malia's life. And the two most recent biographies, uh, the What Lips My Lips Have Kissed and Savage Beauty, which I've talked about on the show many times before, they do a really extensive job of getting in there. And there may be more biographical information that we can discover about Malay. The more that we look into the Library of Congress and we go through her belongings and then other authors. But this book in particular provides us an insight that we've never had before. It shows us a Malay that isn't accessible through her biographies 
even her letters, I don't think, because we don't have her voice here. And Malay's voice is so strong, and, and it's something that I relate to, that I obsess over. Um, being able to read about her without her voice sort of domineering that, that story gives me the freedom to look at her uh, outside, of, outside of herself, outside of the projected image that she had outside of that uh, mask that maybe she put on or or how she you know wanted to be perceived her letters that she wrote might provide us insights but they also were written very intently she had an intent she was writing them because she wanted to be read a certain way even with people in her life so we sort of escape the confines of trying to define who she is by her own writing and we get to see her through somebody who was in love with her somebody who had a tumultuous relationship with her who was a friend to her who was uh, a critic in some ways to her so um i can't recommend the book enough you can find it on amazon you can find it at Barnes and Noble, you can find it at Target. If you're not in America, you can still find it on Amazon. I'm sure you can find it or order it through Waterstones. Really, just Google Blood Too Bright. And if you have trouble with that, I've got a link to the website in the information. So if you're interested in history, if you're interested in Bohemia, if you're interested in literature, if you're interested in love stories, if you're interested in... Um, Really, anything. If you're just interested in Malay, if you're interested in poetry, pick up the book. And I hope you enjoy this interview. It was really lovely, and I'm excited for you all to hear it. Hi, Jerry. Uh, it's wonderful to have you on my podcast. This is amazing. Um, it's really an honor. I wanted to tell you that um, I'm a huge fan of your book. Uh, Jerry Dell is the author of Blood Too Bright. Floyd Dell remembers Edna St. Vincent Millay, and Floyd Dell is your grandfather. That's correct. That is correct. <laughs> uh, this was just one of the most like insightful books on Millay that I have I have read so far. And um, well, I wanted to hear such a thing. That that delights me. I must say. It's other than, I think, you know, Savage Beauty, other than that, this felt like one of the most illuminating texts. A lot of her biographies, um, they're really interesting, but they don't, there's a, uh, there's that hidden Malay that you kind of can't quite access, and um, I, li I like seeing through Floyd's eyes a little bit. Yes, I have to say, too, that because a lot of the book is his letters, a lot, one half of the book is just the letters that he wrote to Miriam Gurko, Malay's biographer. It is really like holding a microphone to him in real time and saying, Floyd, what do you think about Edna St. Vincent Malay and the Greenwich Village of the 1910s and anything else that comes to your mind? Yeah, yeah. That's unusual. He died in 1969, so to be able to talk to him in real time is a lot of fun. Yeah, and I imagine that um, this this um, exploration, like in your introduction, you talk about how this wasn't necessarily your intention, wasn't to, to collect this and, and edit this and write this book, um, 
But I imagine that it uh, really gave you a new window into your grandfather, uh, insights into who he was. Indeed. In fact, I think, as I said in the book, I had originally gone to Chicago to the Newberry Library, which keeps his archives, every paper, every box of, 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 uh, of notes that he had, diaries and that sort of thing. They're all in, in Chicago. And I had gone there because I was in the process of starting my own memoir. And I was trying to recall to my mind the sound of my grandparents' voices because mm. I grew up with them. And Floyd only died when I was a senior in high school. And my grandmother, B died in 1976. So I had known them throughout my life in Washington, D.C., where, where they lived and I lived. So I was trying to find their voices, and it was easier to recall Floyd because he wrote things down. And I could read his autobiography. I could read things that he had published over the years. Mm. Whereas B, Marie, my grandmother, told stories, but she never actually wrote anything down. And I thought when, as a little child that I would remember everything. You know, you do that. Old people talk to you and tell you the same thing, repeat the same thing. I was sure I would remember, but I didn't. And I was heartbroken because I was very, very attached to my grandmother. So I went to Chicago thinking, she will have written Floyd letters. She will have written things that he would have included in his archives. And there were some penny postcards. They did write back and forth a bit when he was traveling for readings, but Really, there wasn't as much about her as I had hoped. And it was only on that last trip that I went that the reference librarian said, and you have seen those other boxes, haven't you? The 1,000 handwritten pages of letters that your grandfather wrote about his affair with Edna St. Vincent Millay. And so yeah, it was a different experience than I, I had in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And kudos uh, for, I mean, I know that, I mean, I, I'm i not um, so young that I didn't learn cursive in school and everything, but kudos for, like, typing and getting those letters uh, legible and, and sharing them with us, because I know, like, I've seen some of the uh, examples of some older handwriting, and I'm like, man, this would just take me, this would take me forever. Um, I was lucky, uh, to be honest, when I first started reading them, I just read, my grandfather wrote beautiful script, he wrote a very easy to read script, oh, that's fortunately, true. Yeah. And, and, but, but still, I would not have been able to have taken them from the Newberry Library, because of course, it all, there were a thousand pages there, and I there was nothing I could do with them except to read them while I was there and make the most of it. But Miriam Gurko had intended to to publish these letters as the collective letters of Floyd Dell about Edna St. Vincent Millay. Mm -hmm. And she had transcribed them on her Smith Corona typewriter. Oh, wow. She already did that. I didn't realize. That's convenient. No, I didn't great. realize it either. I read through all those letters. And when I finished, I got to the last box, and there was the manuscript all typed up. And it was still about 700 pages wow. long. So what I did was I was they allowed me to scan every single page of the typed version of what she had done. And then 
scanning that was a start, so I was able to bring that home to, to my house in Pennsylvania. But that wasn't, you know, scanning it was just the beginning because it was a, it was not a computer, it was not the kind of uh, word processing that we have now, so it wasn't recognized by the scanner the way it, it would be now. Yeah. And so there was a, about a year's worth of cleaning up those scans, but I could be sure that I had the right thing. I had the, I had written, and then I had to choose which of the letters were really relevant and would be the most interesting because nobody needed to read the 800 typed pages of what Floyd had to say about everything in the world. <laughs> yeah, no, I can maybe understand that a little bit. So I find it interesting, you know, what drew me to this is that I'm a Malay scholar. That's what I, I want to do for the rest of my life. But, um, you know, the people that she surrounded herself were very interesting. And in particular, um, in this book, while it, you know, it's, a, it's about your grandfather talking about Malay, and she's a very strong character, I find that, you know, it doesn't prevent Floyd Dell from really shining through. You just learn so much about him, and it feels like a really beautiful insight into who he was as a person. He seemed really sort of kind and understanding and um, certainly not without flaws, but uh, like a really interesting human being. I think that's valuable. I wonder how much you intended that when you started this. No, really, I have been delighted by the response people have had to Floyd in, in the book that um, as you say he had tremendous insights into Malay and gives us, um, I think, a wonderful perspective on who she was as this young, up-and-coming, not yet discovered, at least in the beginning, not yeah. yet discovered a poet that was going to be so famous and celebrated. But he gives us a very clear perspective on himself as sort of representative of his idealistic time in Greenwich Village, the politics of the time, the romance of Greenwich Village, the creativity of the time. And he was, in fact, one of the great chroniclers of that time. In and of himself, he, he wrote 20 books, and he wrote articles, and he was an editor, and he wrote plays. It wasn't that he was inconsequential, but what really did a wonderful job of was describing the times he lived in and the people who were his friends and I think does it in a very entertaining way and he certainly did when I was growing up even as an old man when he would be he was quite frail when he was elderly but he would rise to the occasion when it was time <laughs> to talk when it was time to talk about as a same Malay every dinner got together for big family dinners and every dinner he would end after dessert standing up and quoting the sonnet by Edna St. Vincent Millay and telling us a little bit more about her. So he he had that that spirit of of and that memory. I mean unlike a lot of old men or old people, he remembered everything and he didn't become more conservative as he got older. So he he there were a lot of people who did not forgive Malay for many things, particularly that period where she was trying to get the U.S. into the Second World oh, yeah. War. Ezra Pounds were, were so hostile to her. But Floyd didn't feel that way at all. He believed that he, he really felt that everything about her poetry was 
worthwhile, was brilliant, was to be admired, even if personally she was a little hard to love. Yeah, yeah almost like easy in the beginning, and then it grew to be a really difficult thing. And now I was actually going to ask you um, about uh, what you knew about Malay before you had started on this journey from your grandfather. Um, so this wasn't necessarily uh, what you had set out to do, like we said. Um, but what did, you, what was your impression growing up with with this information about Malay, and um, did you sort of realize like what an impact this discovery was going to make on your on your life? Well, I think it's it's interesting, really. I felt growing up, Edna St. Vincent Malay was a member of the family. She was always at dinner with us. Mm-hmm. She hovered at the rafters of our house all the years that I was growing up. I got a book. I still have it. It's quite tattered, but I still have it, which is the Selected Poems for Young People by Edna St. Vincent Malay. And this was given to me by Floyd when I was about eight years old, just, you know, beginning to, to read. And I memorized half the poems in that <laughs> book between the ages of about eight and ten. And then whenever anything happened in my life, it seemed that there was just the right poem by Edna St. Vincent Millay to address that issue. So if it was an autumn day and I was 13 and walking in the field, I would find myself saying, oh, world, I cannot hold thee close enough. <laughs> I great sky. And then as I got older, uh, she came to me when I was in love with the wrong person. And I was invariably reading her, her sonnets to try to, to come to terms with what was going on. Her fatal interview sonnets always yeah. seemed most appropriate then. <laughs> but so I had my own relationship with her in her poetry as I was growing up. But the personal connection I felt with her was very easy and I don't think I knew the nature of their affair so much as a young person. I just knew she was important. And my grandmother, B adored her. She absolutely adored her. And it's important to, to, to consider that all these letters that I found all those years later in those boxes were letters that my grandmother, B Marie, sent to the Newberry Library. Floyd didn't send them. She th- he didn't put any of those boxes together. He wrote the letters, but the Marie was the one who felt they were worth scholars in the future knowing about. And I have I have a story. I don't know if I wrote this in the book. Did I write the story about how we were sitting at dinner uh, one evening and Floyd was going on as he did about and I was about maybe seven or eight years old. And P. Marie was sitting next to me while he was going on. And and she I overheard her kind of murmuring, Poor Edna. Poor Edna. <laughs> and I, I realized at that point, yes, that's right. She felt that Edna Malay hadn't been happy enough in her life, didn't have the things that that family really gave you, that grandchildren gave you, the things that in fact, lucky for me, be loved. But she thought her poetry, she shared Floyd's view about her poetry and thought she was extraordinary and, and forgave anything that Floyd indulged himself in 
in terms of his memory of her and all of this sort of obsession that he had, as you can see in the letters. Yeah. Because he was a romantic, and he was part of his romanticism was the affair with Malay that never, never died. Not that it didn't. I mean, it, it died after a year and a half in terms of their their yeah. Um, but in, in terms of his memory, in terms of his connection to her and to her poetry and his defense of her throughout her life and his friendship with her, uh, my grandmother was thrilled by that. So yes, they were an unusual couple, and growing up with them was, was quite an unusual experience, really. Well, that's just, that's beautiful. I was going to, um, it's kind of funny how you, you, there's these questions that I had, you keep touching on them, so it seems like both natural that I have the questions um, and natural in the conversation uh, but we <clears throat> as a as a reader you know you're wondering this is a, a woman writing about her grandfather and um, I'm wondering like if any part of the exploration might have been painful but now that you know you're talking about uh, B. Marie she was clearly a huge part in making this like easier and um especially like because he is obsessed like he does and it, it's a collection of letters about malay it's not just about everything else so we do have a narrow view of his ideas of what to talk about but um you know that's the, what was my question i wanted to know if any part of that did that exploration had been painful as a granddaughter rather than just as an author yeah it, i think it was took me a little while to come to terms with those letters and enter the Malay that appeared in those letters, the person of Malay. The, the letters themselves, just the preoccupation, mm -hmm. astonished me. And he spent a lot of time what he called scribbling. He was very often, when I was growing up, behind a closed door. And if you think of it, 1960 to 1969, for me, was my junior high school and my high school years. And all those years, that's what he was doing behind those closed doors. Is he was writing these letters about Edna St. Vincent Millay, which explains where he was and why he was so absent. Wow. And I think that was interesting because because I resented the attention that Floyd got as a young person. I thought that B overindulged him. I thought it was silly that everybody paid so much attention to him. And I, I, I felt that he could be very grumpy and grouchy. <laughs> and yet, when I was reading these books, I mean, these letters, I thought to myself, well, why wasn't he being nicer to be Marie? Why wasn't he paying more attention to this wonderful wife of his? Why was he so involved in this? So that was one part, and, and I did. I got mad at him um, <laughs> and on B's behalf. But as I mentioned, uh, in fact, B wasn't mad at him at all. So then I got annoyed with B. Why wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> why wasn't she standing up for herself more? Um, but then there was a third thing that happened which is that I had my own life that I was living growing up in the 60s. And there was a lot about being female growing up as a, as a young woman with a very, very beautiful young mother. In my case, my father married a, 
a very young girl. I was born when they were in college, so she was only 18. And she adored Malay. And she had a lot of the characteristics as I read the letters, as I came to know Malay personally in this rather intimate way that Floyd gave in his letters to Gurkha. I started seeing this young mother of mine, <laughs> the, the Edna St. Vincent Malay piece of that. I would even say bipolar. There's an element of her that I would call bipolar, even though it was never, of course, it was never diagnosed then. That wasn't the term they used then. But yeah. her ups and downs were very, very noticeable. And a certain egotism, a certain you know, self-centeredness about her that I recognized sorry, in my mom. And that growing up meant that in a funny way, I had this question about being female. Was I going to be defining female as being the, the sexually alluring, brilliant, and the St. Vincent Malay, or was being female being the warm, earth mother, kind, Marie Gage Dell, who, who, who was defining female to me, mm-hmm. and and now at my age now, I, I see it very differently. Reading the letters at my age now, I see it very differently than I would have done when I was quite young and trying to put all the pieces together as a young girl. And there has been a, an evolution. For me personally, I see this now because I'm also writing my own memoir, this evolution of being a teenager, being a college student, living in Paris, having an unusual kind of husband who was a little bit like Eugen Bozeman. (laughs) I I had to get through understanding myself in Malay terms, and ironically now, I live in a farmhouse, like the farmhouse that they lived in, and that mm-hmm. I visited them in. And I have grandchildren who I'm very, very attached to. And I have kind of come into an understanding that there's a little of both. There's a little in the Malay, and now, in my older age, there's a lot of people engaged. So I look at that, and I think the letters, as you can imagine, the letters speak to that as well. It's a very personal journey of my own traveling through the young age that Floyd was to his old age, to the young age Malay was to her old age and her sad end, and my young age and my old age. <laughs> I think that's just uh, that's just wonderful I, uh, and really relatable. Um, I, I think there are a lot of women who who see those two those two images and maybe they don't have. Um, like I didn't really have that more like earth mother, um, family oriented woman in my life in the same way. Um, but I do, like I did sort of, I do feel that I made that same sort of decision at a certain point. I thought I had these two types of what a woman I should be and which way I wanted to go. Um, and I think that I also agree as I get older, that line starts to blur and things change or ideas about what you want change. It's really interesting. And, uh, you know, that is part of why Malaya speaks to me in some ways, I think, because I look at her poetry and, like you said, it changes as I change different things in my life. A poem I thought was about love, you know, recently I've been, well, that feels like that's about death. 
it applies to my life a little bit differently. Um, yeah. And I wanted to, I, I thought this was a really cool moment in the book. One of the letters, uh, Floyd jokingly sort of addresses himself, and he says, yes, Grandpa, you've told us that before. And I imagine that that moment might have been kind of funny for you. Indeed it was. I, I thought to myself, oh, God, yes. And he's been before. And yet it's, it's really nice to hear it now. You miss him. You miss him all those years later. And uh, so it's okay, Grandpa. You can tell those stories often as you want. <laughs> <laughs> and that he's like, he's, it's, it's, a, it's kind of cool because he's talking a little bit like to you, addressing you in, in this way, sort of without ever knowing you would ever pick up these letters would be present there so um what do you think in in all of his insights do you think uh do you think he missed the mark on malay about anything i think he was not perhaps as critical of her poetry in some ways he was over the moon about her poetry and he was very defensive on her behalf when the modernists, the T.S. Eliot's and the Ezra Pounds took her on and and he felt that they were 100% wrong. Unfortunately, history has come down on the side of T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound and they were 100% wrong but I think that he, he I have a friend uh, Stephen Dunn who won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 2001. And he said to me once, you should never be a critic of a poet who you're in love with. <laughs> and and so it's possible that the, the truth um, about Malay and her poetry lies um, a little afield of Floyd's utter love, mm-hmm. utter acceptance. Um, as far as her Personally, I think he was on the mark. Mm-hmm. I think what you see when you read through the book is how, depending on where he was in his own life, where he was in terms of his age, in terms of what else was going on, she was a very different person. She was quite mercurial. And there could be times when he thought she was absolutely magical. Um, there says this, there is just too much magic in it. She is a goddess among mortals. I mean, she was, and not just Floyd felt this way, so many, yeah. many, many people yeah. felt this way. But then other times, he understandably is furious, enraged with her, and, and wants nothing to do with her, and can't understand why he was ever so kind and gentle and generous about her. But then he thinks about it a little bit more, and yet she was all these other things too. She And I think that that wasn't just his perception changing, that was the person she was. That was one of the extraordinary things about her, yeah. was that she was so many different people. Her poetry reflected so many different personalities and different characters. But there is a man named Charlie Lyons who owns the, the rights to the Savage Beauty, to, to Nancy Milford's great big biography of, of Malay Savage Beauty. Mm-hmm. He owns the film rights to it. He's a producer. 
and he has for 10 years. So I don't know if he'll ever actually get this movie out there. I'm hoping he will. But I have said to him that he's read the book and he likes it very much. And I said, pay attention to what Floyd says about Edmund Millay. The images he has of the phosphorescence of the water when she's she's swimming out there off of Staten Island in uh, without her clothes and the the way it shimmers. He has wonderful imagery of who she was and how she she was, and I think it would make a wonderful film. And yes, I think he really was on the mark about her. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I um, I didn't find much that I felt um, that I disagreed with. Not that I'm an expert. I all I am is a person who voraciously digs in all Malay material. Uh, so, and I don't, you know, I don't have any other magical insight into her. But I did think that the one, the one thing that I thought was uh, really hilarious um, was when he talks about. Um, I think he does. He is he asked the question that can a virgin have an orgasm? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they were working those things out. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was really almost um, like it was like sweet and funny and sort of ridiculous. You know, like I just was like, oh, Floyd. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, exactly. What men didn't know about women. Volume. Oh yeah, <laughs> that was. Floyd, who was a well-known feminist, he claimed he claimed feminism for himself. I'm not sure if you would have reason to have read any of the things that came out. Oh, I guess in the last 20 years about Floyd, but there was something in a um, online magazine which is called The Baffler. I'm not, are you familiar mm-hmm. with that? I'm not, but I I will be. I'm gonna look it yeah. up. Check it out because it's. He wrote an essay a hundred years before that 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 magazine came out, which is called "Feminism for Men," and a modern contemporary feminist wrote a response to Floyd Dell called "Feminism for Them." Mm-hmm. And he includes she includes the whole of his essay and then her entire response and. Are you familiar with um, Spinster? The, yes. The book by Kate Pollock. Yes. Well, Kate, I found because she it was an online um, answer, you know, question answer kind of thing after mm-hmm. this um, this Baffler article, and Kate hadn't yet published her book, and they started having this very lively conversation about Floyd Dell. And why weren't there more Floydells in the world? And why weren't men more interested in women's rights? And and that was a hundred years ago. And look, and yet then there's the other side, which is oh yes, but that was well and good. But he went off and had affairs in Greenwich Village and didn't think twice about it. And then there's another side. Yes, but all those women remained his friends. They all went on liking him, and he went on liking them. And it's just a very interesting thing. He was unusual in in the extent to which he was pro-suffrage, pro-women, pro a socialist, of course, and a pacifist, but his affection and respect for women, even if one didn't accept the reasons why he thought 
that it was important for women to have the vote and for women to be working and for women to do all these things. He thought it was great for men to have, have women that were so much more interesting than those women who did very little. There's a reason to feel that that's a little self-serving, but it doesn't matter. Whatever the reasons, they can be crummy reasons, but if you're in favor of women's rights and respecting women, then it doesn't really matter. So anyway, if you see that article, and then there are other articles he wrote, which include, Can Men and Women Be Friends? Yeah, um, I fin- when I finished your book, I actually went on my Amazon list, and I've got a few Floyd Dell books that I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm ordering. I'm like, I, he, he seems so sophisticated. And that's what I think that's what makes that moment funnier when he asks about virgins and orgasms that I'm... I'm like, okay, that's surprising, because for some reason it doesn't seem like, even for the times, he was so he was so much farther ahead. Um, and you're right, I mean, like, I, I don't necessarily know all of his reasons, but even if they were crummy, he was, he's on the right side, and, and uh, I don't know, he seemed like a really lovely person um, in general, and just really smart and considerate. The person who said that he went off and had affairs and didn't think twice, I can't imagine that he didn't think 15 times about anything he ever did. (laughs) (laughs) And then he wrote about it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, I would recommend if you find, if there's uh, one book that you you get, and they aren't so easy to find anymore because everything he has done really is out of print, but his autobiography, Homecoming, is one of my favorite books. The letters I love because he didn't edit them at all. You could tell they were cross outs. You could tell that he was, it was in real time, he was speaking these things. But with Homecoming, I felt even though it was edited and it was published, unlike some of his novels, which are somewhat stilted and have a formal feel to them and, and feel very, very dated, his story of the, his life up until the age of, of 40 he his life is as he tells the story it, it tells about the trials the masses trials it tells about Greenwich Village it tells about the first world war and, and up to the point and it talks about Malay it talks about it includes a lot of his poetry his own poetry <clears throat> I find that one of the best books he ever wrote just because it it is um, a bit of a romp through that part of American history And he knew such interesting people, such wonderfully interesting radicals, and he had so many opinions, and I love that about him. So uh, his attitudes, though, about women, for example, he was a big supporter of Margaret Sanger. When Margaret Sanger was being thrown in jail for getting information about birth control out, Mm -hmm. he, he he was going to make big speeches in large halls in her defense, and when women would write, when he was editing the, the Masses magazine, people were writing to him asking for the Masses to give them the information that Margaret Sanger was able to provide about contraception. Of course, legally, he couldn't do it because it was, it was totally illegal, this contraception um, and information about it. But he would then give all the Sanger's materials to a third party and he would have that person send them to the women asking for them. And he writes, I think he writes it in the book, I can't remember if he writes it in one of his letters to Gurkha, that he felt that you 
have to disobey laws if they're just plain wrong. Yeah, yeah, that was in there. I really, I liked it. Yeah, <laughs> and a good I quote. think in our times today, when I read what the masses had to say about the greedy, I don't know if you're, you've seen any of the um, uh, literature about the masses magazine, but the masses magazine was was not around for a really long time. It was from about 1913 until 1917 when the federal government closed it down. But there were so many issues associated with women, so many issues associated with, with the workers. Labor unions were just starting. Women were just beginning to, to be taken seriously. Peace and war were being, you know, war by the greedy against the, you know, the haves and the have-nots, all of this. Mm -hmm. and I have to say that as, as things happened in our day, I find all of these things that they fought so hard for 100 years ago we're in the process of losing, and they're they're whittling away at it, and it's so shocking to me. Everybody, we all thought that battle had been fought and won forever, but it hasn't. And I think when I was reading, you know, the the um, Edna Malay uh, book, Make Bright the Arrows. Yes. Yeah. The, the one that for which she was roundly trounced by yeah. the men. Um, and Boyd's contention, of course, is it's not just that they didn't like her poetry. They, they were mad because she was so popular, and they were mad because she was a woman, and she had no business being popular. But there are some wonderful poems in that book. I don't yeah. care what I don't care what Ezra Pound says. And in fact, I was going to I was going to share with you an inscription that that that, that NMLA put into my copy, the copy that I inherited from Floyd. Oh, wow, um, yeah. Yes, of, of Make Bright the Arrows. And it says, Dear Floyd, don't be a critic of poetry while you read this book. Just be a recorder of human reactions, except for the case of the good poem, and there are some, affectionately, as a Millet. And there are some. And yeah. I find myself absolutely convinced that that the poems that she that she writes here apply so completely. Um, yeah, there was there's like um, the the one about the eclipse I read on the podcast recently. Um, I read it after the uh, the rally, the neo Nazi rally. I read that one, um, and then there um, there's another one. Shoot. I don't remember the name, but I, I had been going over Make Bright the Arrows, and I was really astounded because I had avoided it um, in my, yep. I had it, I collect first editions because <laughs> I am gen, I'm just genuinely obsessed. I had gone through and sort of not paid much attention to those. I really focused on like a lot of the love sonnets and eventually like my, my academic interest and my taste has expounded beyond, expanded beyond that. And, um, I was really just delighted when I read it, and I was sort of amazed at how it was so just critically panned, and how aggressive even she talks about it. I mean, even in an inscription to a friend, she's she's sort of tempering his reaction immediately, like don't don't be too critical. Well, also she knew the difference between really good poetry and not really good poetry. She knew it perfectly well. And she was more than glad to sacrifice the perfect couplets 
ensure that Europe wasn't absolutely flattened by the Nazis. And, and so I think she made a very conscious and deliberate decision about that. Yeah. And I do think that it's not her best poetry, but you, would you like it? There's one, one poem I'd love to read. Yeah, yes, like? absolutely. From, from Fatal. I think it's from um, uh, Make Bright the Arrows. And it's called Underground System. Yeah, yeah, please do. Set the foot down with distrust upon the crust of the world. It is thin. Moles are at work beneath us. They had tunneled the subsoil with separate chambers, which at an appointed knock would be as one could intersect and interlock. We walk on the skin of life. No toil of rake or hoe, no lime, no phosphate, no rotation of crops. No irrigation of the land will coax the limp and flattened grain to stand on that bad day or feed to strength the, the nibbled roots of our nation. Ease has demoralized us, nearly so. We know nothing of the rigors of winter. The house has a roof against the car atop against the snow. All will be well, we say. It is a habit, like the rising of the sun. For our country to prosper, who can prevail against us? No one. The house has a roof, but the boards of its floor are rotting, and hall upon hall the moles have built their palace beneath us. We have not far to fall. That's a hell of a good poem. It is, and thank you for reading it. That's wonderful. I'm so delighted. That's really great. Um, that's I just, I, I think that my view on, on the, the whole thing is, um, because there isn't a lot of academic work on it, eventually I'm, I'm going to sort of focus on that. I might be doing that. I'm doing my master's right now, so potentially for my, my dissertation I might have a chapter on, a, on her propaganda poetry, which I, I talked to a professor about in my undergrad, and he writes on um, poetry uh, during in England, Ireland, and Scotland during the French Revolution. And all the poetry then is political and sort of propaganda poetry. So he's trying to, his response to me is like, well, I don't see what, what difference that makes. I don't see how that changes the nature of poetry at all. And so he's like, it, it had sort of challenged my idea of what I had I kept reading, which was that this propaganda poetry was definitely going to be bad or it was, um, it sort of had less importance, but that was the more recently when I read through the po the book, I was like, this is so pertinent. I feel like I could could read all of these on my podcast and have people relate to them. And yeah, and I think that it's one of the you may remember in Floyd's book in in Blood Too Bright, he did make a very clear uh, statement that there was nothing at all inappropriate with Edna St. Vincent Millay taking on the fascists in no. her poetry. Nothing at all. The fact that she didn't spend as much time on those poems, the fact that she was rushing to get them out because they were serving a different purpose than just aesthetic, may have had something to do with the fact that they aren't as good as poems, as poetry, as as her others. Mm -hmm. Also, she was in pain at the time. Yeah. There has been discussion about the impact that the morphine had on her 
itself, as your professor suggests, is is ridiculous. That 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 I do agree with Floyd that Ezra Pound, who was a fascist, yeah, I mean, there's no that he was a fascist. Okay. He had his own agenda, and he was, from what I can tell, a bit of misogynist too. So you put those things together. I would love you to take him on, not not necessarily because he's not a great poet. I think he was a good poet, but I think that he took he took liberties there. He didn't both. Him and T.S. Eliot, I am not fans of. I really, really dislike them. <laughs> it's, and it seems like, you know, every college-educated dude I meet has got some, I don't know, some connection to T.S. Eliot. We, we, in my undergrad, when we went over it, every single guy in the class was like, The Wasteland, it's good. I'm like, it's a good poem, but he stole some of it, and it's full of anti-Semitic rhetoric, so I don't know why you like this. Exactly. He, he's, I mean, it's, you know, it's that they, that they won. They won in this battle, and, and you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons, I think, that women go on appreciating Malay uh, as... Not every every one of the fans that has gotten back to me because of my book is female. But we I have had maybe two thirds are women and one third are men. There are still it's a small group, but it's uh, a group that's quite committed to beauty. I mean, it's it's the beauty of the language, it's the beauty of her vision, and even when she gets into her real roused about annoyed, aggressive uh, female self, she says it so beautifully, so extraordinarily, but the fact that it rhymes uh, bothers a contemporary audience, they Which, think, you know, don't pay attention to it. Yeah, it's, I, so what, what my goal is, like what I want to focus on is bringing Malay back sort of um, into canon. So my, my first dissertation that I, I did, I wrote about how um, she inherits from uh, romantics and um, how a lot of her poetry, a lot of her sonnets in particular, are actually, you can see them as a conversation with older sonnets. Um, I found a couple which sound like she's talking either directly to Shakespeare in, like, Shakespeare has a sonnet and then she's responding directly to it. The lines correspond, things like that, where I'm just like, these intellectual modernists, right, that, that's their hook, you gotta be really intellectual, missed all of this. And I keep feeling like every time I go into her work that she was like hiding this very smart stuff under these very pretty words. And it wasn't just emotional, like she could relate to anybody on an emotional level. All of those bohemian women, all of those women fighting for their, for their rights and fighting to find themselves could find in her work this resonance, this emotional resonance. But when you realize, oh, that, that poem is, looks like it's a response to Keats, like directly, and nobody talks about it. It's like nobody yeah. looked at it because they just thought, well, she's popular. There's no reason to actually delve into this. So right. that's my, my goal is just to, to see if we can place her and other, other women and other marginalized authors who were modernists. She was modernist. She was writing modernist work. She just was using form. So yeah, she had she had uh, first century content, and I think that that Holly um, Pepe, the executor of the Malay estate, 
will be so happy when I tell her that a young scholar <laughs> is at work bringing Belay back in Aberdeen, Scotland, that into the canon. Because when we were doing this uh, this talk, Holly and Christina and I were doing this talk last weekend. One of the, the questions came up in from the audience. Well, what what next? What happens next? And Holly, who was about my age, was saying, we are starting finally to see a new generation of scholarship about Malay, and we are very eager to encourage that in any way we can. And I would say there's one other thing that's happening, and that is, are you familiar with something called the Edna Project? I am, yeah, the, the musicians, yeah. and poetry festival, right? The Malay yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, and so I had heard it before, but I didn't know them, and I, but what I told Liz was that all this time I was writing the book, I was writing it about, you know, it was Floyd talking about Malay, Floyd talking about the person, I was trying to cope with the fact that she had a lot of strange things in her personality, she was selfish, I felt, she mm. was unkind a lot of the time, and I didn't like it. And I was totally preoccupied with that, with her character. And one day, I just happened to put on Liz Queller's End of Project Music as I was writing. And I put my pen down. And I just stared into space and said, wait a minute, this is it. This is the reason it's worth going to all this trouble to write this book. <laughs> This is, is the, some of the most beautiful, Floyd's right, it's some of the most beautiful poetry in the English language, and it is so musical mm -hmm. that maybe we don't, in the 21st century, we can't read it the way we can listen to it if it's music. Because we do still, songs, songwriters are still writing songs that rhyme and have that meter and have those rhythms. So that when Liz was singing her poetry, I realized maybe that's part of what we need to do to get Malay back into the picture is to hear it as song. Yeah. I don't I don't know, but it certainly reminds me how incredibly beautiful that music is. I mean that that yeah. musicality <laughs> for poetry. Yeah, and um, I'm I, I'm a really big fan. I kind of search out some of those things. On the podcast, we have um, our intro song, which is um, by this cellist, and she has this beautiful voice, and um, she's her band is called Unwoman, and she oh. does, um, her song is actually the one she let me use, she gave me permission to use for the podcast, was Witch Wife. So she uh -huh. does Witch Wife, and it's, it's astounding. It's um, just in the intro. And then at the end, 
of the podcast, I actually close, I started, I changed my closing segment, um, and we include now this song called Me and Edna St. Vincent Millay by Will Stenberg, and it's not Millay's poetry, but it's about Millay. It's really a pleasant song, really reminiscent of Woody Guthrie and sort of Wilco folky music. It's it's enjoyable. But there's also another, there's another musician who does Millay's uh, songs, and I don't remember what her name is. Um, she's I don't play her on my podcast. I haven't been able to get a hold of her. I've been trying to, but um, there's a lot of musicians out there who are like really tapping into Malay's musicality, like you said, and I think that is one way that she's going to keep reemerging. Yes. In fact, when I was up at Seaport uh, myself last weekend, two of the people who were buying my book, we were, I was doing a signing, and they came up, and they were both musicians, young people, don't you read, coming in and saying that the reason that they had found so much to love in, in her poetry was precisely this, that she that they wanted to to put her poetry to music and it lent itself so well to that and do you know the story of of liz queller and why she started writing music i thought um, i have i thought i might have read it but i'm not sure you should what is it <laughs> well it's a it's a lovely story apparently her dad uh, she she was a musician. She and her husband have been musicians for years, and they do jazz, and they've done some country, they do some a lot of singer-songwriting kind of things in New York City. And her dad had gotten very sick. I think he had Alzheimer's, mm. and it had devastated her, and she absolutely lost her ability to write songs. And she wasn't sure what she could do to jolt herself back into her music because she was just so down. Well, her mother-in-law had given her a volume of Malay's poetry, and she had never known Malay at all as a younger person. It, it, you know, it simply had escaped her. She had never known her. And she just opened the book, just opened it up at random, and she found a poem that absolutely captured her. I'm not sure which of them it was. And she said, let me just see if I could put this to music. Let me just see if I could do it as an exercise. Mm -hmm. And she loved what came out of it. So she said, let me do it again. And she would spend her days, instead of being sad and, and depressed, which is how it had been before, while her husband was off and her son was off, she was writing music to all these song, these poems and her, her husband, Seth, came home and heard them, and he wrote a musical accompaniment because he's the, he plays the piano. Mm -hmm. And then all, with their little son, they started singing them together as well. But for her, it was the healing. Yeah. It was, it was the coming through Malay, and you know how she is preoccupied with death, and she does make things beautiful that are sad. I mean, her... Her poetry that deals with death is extraordinarily beautiful. And so it was a way of breathing kind of life back into herself or letting Edna Malay breathe life into her. <laughs> That's really wonderful. I um I've liked I've liked them for a while. I think I I bought an album from the Edna Project. And um, I was really excited to see all um, their performances going on and seeing the pictures on Facebook from the Malay Festival. I was 
I was so jealous. I wanted to be there so much. I had just been through, um, well, I'd been to, I'd just been to Austerlitz. I just passed through Steepletop. It was my first visit and I was leaving the States, um, to come back here in August. So it was like August 4th, I think. And I drove, I flew out to see a friend in Ohio and drove all the way to Austerlitz because I wanted to make sure I hit that before I flew. So I had like changed my whole itinerary. I didn't, I was normally going to fly out of Arizona, so I like I changed it to come fly out of New York so I could stop at, at Steepletop and see it for the first time. Um, and then, of course, it was just a few weekends after that that the, f- the festival is going on, and I'm like... Oh. I'm, I'm feeling really hopeful because um, I see more and more frequently um, more mentions of Malay online. You know, I've got a little Google alert whenever Malay is published on anything, and I've had that for probably 10 years. <laughs> so the change in how that alert comes, it used to come like once a year. Once a year, somebody would say something about Malay. And now every week, if not twice a week, there's something being like some article or somebody's mentioning her. She's quoted. This week, um, today, I got a notification where somebody had said, oh, the genius feminist uh, Georgia O'Keefe and Edna St. Vincent Malay. And I was like, that's fantastic. Let's put her right there with George Hokies. Do that. (laughs) I saw that, too. I I also have that Google alert, and I had that (laughs) same reaction. Of course, I have to say that last week I saw it three times all about our little talk at Austerlitz because several uh, newspapers, local newspapers, were reporting on it. So it was nice to see it again and again, although it kept being us. She's modern and postmodern. It's it's it was brilliant. It's totally brilliant and really. Yeah, yeah. She wasn't just the writer of words on paper. What made her so popular, as we know, is 
the way she could project on the stage and her, you know, her persona, the whole character that she created. And I thought, you know, she was a born actress. She expected to be an actress. She thought she would make her living as an actress because she could never make her living as a poet because there's no money in poetry. Well, as we know, that didn't happen quite that way. But I think that there, as a scholar, you have so many different avenues. You've got the political avenue that has not been well enough well enough studied yet at all. You've got the acting and the theater side of it. Um, and Aria de Capo bringing that back and, and, and the way that, that what she does with that as an academic exercise as well as just the beauty of it, getting it out there and more, you know, in more venues now that I just think there's a lot of things that were going on with Malay and Floyd and all the rest of them a hundred years ago that have relevance to us today. Listeners, if you haven't gone and read Aria de Capo, it's really easy to get a copy of on Amazon. You should read it. Um, and it's not very long. It's a one-act play, but I've never seen a production of it, which is amazing to me. Ah. Yeah. In fact, one of the women, the president of the International Glasgow Society told me, she's a young woman, I believe, and she told me that she had translated Aria de Capo into Spanish, that this was, and it was being produced in Spanish. Um, so, you know, recently. So I think, yes, this is another case where she has relevance and, and is being brought back um, by a younger generation, which I think is terrific, whether it's a play about her life, uh, a movie, because I think that if we could get a movie, you know, with Scarlett Johansson playing in the same Oh, you think so? Don't you think so? <laughs> then, then I think she's going to come back. We're going to start reading her poetry. We listen to the music. We watch the film. We the, the and she, she's been I, in uh, she's been in Z the Zelda the Zelda show the Amazon one uh, about Zelda Fitzgerald. I yes, know. which was also written, I think, by um, Nancy Milford. The bi- yeah, um, she did the official biography. I don't know if the show is is it based off the official biography. I thought it was, but Am maybe I, it's a different movie. There's another movie that's coming out um, about Zelda, which I believe is specifically from, it's it's the film script based oh, on Zelda. That's so, great. So cool. I uh, I actually, I bought that because I was such a fan of Milford's writing. I thought she just uh, did a wonderful job. It's The Savage Beauty is a tome. It's 500 pages, and I couldn't put it down, which I think says something when it's a biography, which is, they're typically a lot more dry, but... Um, the, yep. In this show, I think it's Christina Ricci plays Zelda Fitzgerald. I haven't watched it yet, but every person I know who has watched it and knows me has messaged me saying, Malay's in this, Malay's in this, have you seen this? So she's a character who comes in at dinner parties and stuff, even though I think what we've sort of learned from Floyd was that she didn't really, she didn't really know the Fitzgeralds. Writers sort of stuck to their own little group. They didn't really mix the way we might imagine in our heads. Right, um, right, and they they also, um, I mean, they were contemporaries, and I'm sure that they did meet at restaurants periodically, and um, and Floyd disliked Scott Fitzgerald so much, the two of them, <laughs> great enemies, um, but, and and I think Edna Malay did keep, she had a very specific circle of friends. And um, in fact, in Dirge Without Music, um, 
she talks about lovers and friends down, down, down into the earth with you, lovers and friends, tender and kind. And tell, you know, the, the lovers and friends were, were a finite number. And, you know, one of them was Floyd. One of them was Edmund Wilson. You know, one of them, and probably most important, was Arthur Davis and Ficky. And, and of course, Eugene. But but a lot of these people that are better known, the Hemingways, the Fitzgeralds, uh, the ones who, who had more flamboyance about them, not so much. I mean, mm-hmm. she... Really, she she had lots of lovers and she had lots of friends, but she she was very close to I think just a few of them really. That's one one of the things I had um, I studied under um, a wolf scholar. She's an extensive uh, she's an expert in the field. She has all of her journals and notes. And um, when I had talked to her about Malay, um, and she's English, I was like, hey does Wolf ever talk about Malay? And she told me, she's like, well, if I ever if I ever find her name, I'll let you know. And she's never found any mention, which just totally blows my mind. But <laughs> then I'm like, yeah. why? How do these people not know about each other? I'm always looking for, for references. Malay was so famous that it seems sort of like in any of those correspondences, any of those people talking and that all of their papers are saved, all of these authors, nobody really says anything or says much. It's really just critics. In publications it's kind of interesting well have you seen any of the uh, things Dorothy Parker has mentioned because they did know each other and they did know each other's poetry and Dorothy Parker you know was was probably the the exact opposite in terms of the kind of poetry she wrote but she admired Malay tremendously I didn't know that I love Dorothy yeah. Parker that's amazing yeah. And Floyd liked them both, and and again, they were as different as night and day, and they were both New Yorkers, and they were, um, Dorothy, of course, uh, Dorothy Parker was in the, you know, the the little group, the round table that they would sit in and be nasty about other people and sarcastic. I mean, she had a whole persona of her own, but she had enormous respect for Edna Malay. Yes, I think it's definitely worth with looking and of course then there was Eleanor Wiley who yes, yes. the other and I think that the uh, Untermeyer Lewis Untermeyer there there were I mean she I don't mean to suggest that she didn't have a lot of brilliant friends who were authors but the ones that are have kind of gone in history as being you know the F. Scott Fitzgeralds and the Ernest Hemingways and so on no they, they were not part of her world. Like, Floyd feels badly, he says in the book, that he never invited her to Mabel Dodge's salon on Fifth yeah. Avenue. Well, that's why she didn't know so many of these people. He feels very guilty about it. I like. I did think that that was uh, one of the little funnier aspects. Of Floyd takes a lot of responsibility for Malay, and he takes yeah. a lot of responsibility for some of her poems, too. So there's, like, points in it where I'm like, okay... You know, maybe you're right. Maybe all of these poems are about you, or maybe this was your fault. But it seems like he's, I think it's just that emotional investment. But it's it's very amusing and um, also also sweet. I don't know. It comes he comes across as such a sweet man. Well, you know, I found a letter not in the Newberry Library. I found it in my own um, in my own box of. of of miscellaneous papers to my astonishment. Oh, wow. It's 
a letter that Floyd had written to Arthur Fickey from the apartment, the Malay's apartment on Charlton Street in Greenwich Village. And it's at midnight, and he's writing this long letter to his friend Arthur in Davenport, and he's quoting what the girls, the girls, <laughs> and Dora are saying as they're as they're sewing curtains because they they made the little bit of money they could make back in 1918 was as seamstresses, and they were renting this apartment above a sewing shop, and so they were working all night long to finish these curtains and they're sending out these funny funny comments and Floyd is faithfully recording them to Uncle Arthur they kept referring to him as Uncle Arthur um, and at one point he was describing which poems he says oh Edna no Vincent Vincent has been doing the most wonderful poetry recently and he talks about what they are and that she just read it to him and I mean, these are some of her most famous poems from 2nd April. I mean, like the most famous. And they were during the time of their affair. I mean, I know that yeah, because yeah. she's reading them to him as hot off the press, you know, of her writing it. And so I, my feeling is just, it was just, I'll see if I can find that letter to send you. Because it's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful letter. Oh, wow, that'd be amazing. It really is as if you're seeing it in a movie because he's recording it so but i do think that there were two or three that and they were not flattering ones no 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 the ones he claims for himself are not the nice ones they're the no, ones no. you know say so let this be your little day your little uh, you know your little, little month your little, little happy year. um half a year ere i forget or move or you know she was not speaking in kindly terms no, about the no. man started with her. She was going to to storm away and find another lover. So, I mean, he, he doesn't claim it as being um, as being made no. important and privileged by these letters, <laughs> but I think that, by these poems, but I do think that some of them probably were about him. Oh, absolutely. I also, and, I think like what I had thought about it was just that she was so um, sort of meticulous in her process that I think that even like if she if she wrote down emotion that that my this is just my own like sort of fancy I guess that eventually like that would sort of develop into something else like she would begin to replace yeah. words and and edit to the point of sort of creating a poetic fiction that maybe yeah. have like might have been based in something but evolved. Well, and Floyd said he thought there were two things. I think in the letters he says he was, people often asked, well, who do you think these poems were to? And, you know, a lot of the sonnets, which are so brilliant, you know, who were they to? And he said they were to no one. They were uh, sort of in a consolidation that, as you say, she didn't use the term a a his kind of a fiction but it was a kind of a historic fiction that pulled together a lot of people men in her life that mattered and about whom she had a lot of feelings but by the time she wrote the poem it was a poem that was not to one person and it could have been to any number of people but then he went on to say he felt that some of her best poems 
attributed to a man in the poem qualities that were really much more the male version of her. Yeah. That she was really writing the persona that she had was a persona, whether it was courageous or passionate or intelligent, all of these things that she would attribute to a beloved was actually usually fit much more her own character as he saw her. So I never heard that before. That's really wonderful. I think that she does, I think that's something that she does that's really innovative um, as a as a poet is that she writes, especially with sonnets, because they're typically addressed to a female subject by a male author, and she is a female author, and she makes herself the subject. You know, her subjects aren't, aren't about, it's not about other people. That's why it always seems like they're a response. So you have like a Keats love sonnet to an unknown woman and her response to it is as a woman where the subject is herself talking to a male suitor who has said something ridiculous and so I think there's uh, she just does a really good job of sort of flipping that on its head and um, I think the just really this whole book is wonderful. Um, again, for uh, any listeners, it's a, it's Blood Too Bright. Floyd Dell remembers Edna St. Vincent Millay, which you can get at, um, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes and Noble. You can get it at Target. You can get it basically anywhere. Just type it into Google. It's by Jerry Dell, who has so graciously spoken with me this whole time. And did you want to say anything about any um, projects you're working on? You said you're working on your own memoirs now. Yes, I have two projects. One is leaving entirely the whole Dell granddaughter thing. Uh, it's to it starts in the 1970s when I began work at the World Bank, and I worked there for 30 years with working primarily in Africa, but also in India and Peru, and what it was like in a very male-dominated World Bank to do the things I wanted to do. Uh, after all, I was Floyd Dell's granddaughter, right? <laughs> Socialist Floyd Dell. So it, a lot of people found it odd that I could spend 30 years working for the great, big, and powerful World Bank. But this is actually my story. It's not the world. It's not an expose of the World Bank or anything like that. The World Bank is sort of a character in my my story because. And it is the backdrop for my own my own um, experience. But my own experience in the 70s and 80s and, and 90s at the World Bank um, was not in, insignificant in that women, particularly from a feminist perspective, there was a whole lot about women in development that wasn't known when I got started and about women in a bureaucracy that were not known when I was I got started. Sexual harassment. I was this the head of the Status of Women Working Group of the Staff Association of the World Bank. So I came by my feminism honestly, as we know. <laughs> and my father continued it. I continued it. My son now continues it. Um, so I do, that's not the whole story. There's a lot more to that, of that story um, than I'm giving you here. But that is the thing I'm working on most furiously right now. But I have another 
that started, which is called The Ghost of the Girl Poet. Oh. And The Ghost of the Girl Poet is about growing up with being Floyd and then the Malay uh, in New Hampshire, the house in New Hampshire and the, the house in Washington, D.C. That's, um, I'm excited for that. I'm excited for both. Uh, your story just sounds amazing. That's really, really cool. Um, another just interesting thing is that one of the questions I had that we sort of had gone over, but I thought the word choice was interesting, was um, talking about how, um, you know, Floyd talked about Malay as a ghost, but that even that before I had sort of read that and absorbed that, I, I felt like she haunted him in a way, like that she was a very like spectral character in his entire life. So it, it seems really appropriate that that, that, that continues on. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, she, she is a little like uncanny and ghostly and sprightly in my own mind. Um, I did want to mention that I found the um, artist that I had been talking to you about. Her name was Caroline Weeks. And she does a version of Pity Me Not that I think is just, it's very ethereal. It's almost like being underwater and floating, and it's, um, I enjoy it quite a bit. I've been wanting to get a hold of her to, to get her music on here. Um, there are artists that I'm planning on interviewing as well who, who use Malay as an inspiration. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much, Samantha, and I'm so pleased you're doing this work. It's wonderful work, and I hope that your your listeners are rushing out and getting more and more Malay and spreading the good word. And that's the interview. Again, I just want to say a big thank you to Jerry Dell. It was a pleasure to talk to you. It really made my day. Thanks for coming on the show. And just a quick apology about the sound. Still getting things worked out with those interviews. Tried something different this time. Came out a little different. But hopefully it's clear. And, um, you know, if anybody's got any feedback, just let me know. You can hit me up at thewitchwife at gmail.com. Uh, the Witch Wife on Instagram, The Witch Wife on Facebook. You can always comment on iTunes. You can give a review. Anything would be appreciated. And I'll be back next week with a poem and some analysis for you. This has been The Witch Wife with your host, Samantha Mosca. Thanks so much for listening. And a special thanks to Unwoman for the use of the theme song, Witch Wife, off of her album, Blossoms which you can find at unwoman.com. A huge thank you to Will Stenberg for the use of his song, Me and Edna St. Vincent Millay, off of the album, Eros and Error, which you can find at willstenberg.bandcamp.com. And last, but certainly not least, a huge thank you to the Malay Society for preserving Malay's work and her legacy. Please support the Malay Society at malay.org. If you'd like more content on Malay, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Witch Wife Podcast. And if you've got any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at thewitchwife at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. small country towns feeling so happy and gay taking advice offered at a good
Me and Edna St. Vincent 